Welcome to Growth Marketing Today, where marketers, designers, and product owners level up their growth marketing chops from experts in today's top startups. Here's your host, Ramley John. Ever wonder what marketing will look like in 2020? Well, Jeff Goldenberg, Chief Strategy Officer at Abacus Agency and the former head of growth at Barrowall, dishes out his thoughts on machine learning, attribution data, accountability, and more in today's Growth Marketing Today episode. He also shares with us the difference between champion and challenger campaigns and how to split your marketing budget between the two. I'm going to say that this episode is so full of insights from one of the smartest person I know in marketing. You're going to enjoy this episode. Now, If you want the high level outline and quotes from this episode, simply go to growthmarketing.today forward slash 015. That's 015. Ready? Here's my chat with Jeff. Hey, everybody. We have here Jeff. Jeff is the guy. Uh, he's been everywhere. He taught at different colleges. You've wrote a book on growth hackers. How's it going, Jeff? I know it's super cold. We're wearing our hats, right? Yeah. <laughs> Today was the first cold Toronto day. It was like oh, minus 17 or something. It was brutal. Like, it was just absolutely it's like… It's just the beginning. Oh, winter is here. You know, That's so right. to speak, if you watch Game of Thrones, man. That's right. Winter's coming. <laughs> already here stop stop it <laughs> well thank you so much for having me on i'm excited to chat with you awesome before i get into anything about growth maybe you can tell a little bit about your career journey so far i know that it's like super for a lot of people i find it's been like well it's very like squiggly versus linear maybe talk about what you studied in university and then how sure. you got to here sure it's uh i'll try to condense it to a short amount of time because it's a lot of different stops but went to McGill and I studied uh, management, which is their undergrad business program. Nice. Yeah, so it was, um, I don't know how it is now because it's been a very long time, but it was a good program back then. And I was doing entrepreneurial stuff while I was there. One of my first entrepreneurial endeavors was that I lived in residence with a lot of the McGill athletes, like the uh, varsity athletes. And they had this old McGill logo that the school banned because maybe it's somewhat culturally insensitive, <laughs> but the athletes all loved that stuff and they lamented the time when they used to be able to get that stuff. So me being, you know, like looking for like beer and food money, I just got them in and I'd like sling, <laughs> sling the stuff from the parking lot behind the, the right. stadium. I'm giving them like tearaway pants. And oh my goodness. Jackets. How much were you ch- charging? I don't know. I'm sure I doubled it, yeah. <laughs> but it was good at the time. And That's it was, funny. it was neat though, because right. they were so happy to get right. it and I was so happy to sell it. Yeah. It was kind of fun. Then I went to York and I got an MBA. Nice. Again, we're talking like 20 years ago, so I can't comment on neither the school <laughs> nor the curriculum, nice. nor right. whether an MBA is still valuable, but I learned a lot there. I started some entrepreneurial clubs and stuff because it was really like 20 years ago. Like they didn't. It's new, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially in schools. Like they would do one class on like writing a business plan and that was entrepreneurial. Yeah. So I started clubs and did stuff there. One of the things I did, they had a consulting group where companies from the community could come and get consulting work from MBA students. Nice. And they'd pay. It was like 60 bucks an hour and we got 30 of it or something. So I started doing that and that was really cool for getting real life experience. And I actually got my first two jobs through people that I met through that. It was the end of the dot-com era and I worked for two startups right out of university. Both of them were really interesting, but super ahead of their time. And that was my first lesson in the real world was doing these startups at the end of the dot-com era. What was your role there? You were marketing or were you doing? Business development and marketing, yeah. But I mean, when it's four or five people, you're doing everything. everything. <laughs> yeah. So then I got sort of addicted to startups. 
Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I have a nine-year-old and a nine-month-old, and I don't think I want either of them to follow what I did. Come on, really? <laughs> it's so hard. It's hard, but it's fun. I'd say it's fun. It's, it's I'd fulfilling. say it's fun on a good day. I'd say it's like gut-wrenching on a bad day. I think it's so right. difficult. It's like it the ups and downs are yeah. so painful, but and then you get addicted to them. It's no different it's than like, being a drug addict. Like, <laughs> I don't know that I could go sit at a desk now. Same. Like, it's like uh, getting in your first tattoo. Like, first tattoo is like, oh, sh- shit, this hurts. Right. But you get addicted to totally. the pain. Then after those didn't work out, I wanted to go work for a VC. Nice. Uh, and that's really hard to break into. Yeah, um, it is. And it wasn't, it was right. different then than it is now. I ended up taking a job with the Toronto Argos. I ran marketing. Yeah, for I know. Them. I saw that. You're running marketing for Toronto Argonauts. That was really cool because right. that was the year that they decided to do all this like crazy pregame and halftime entertainment yeah. to bring new people in. So we did stuff with Tony Hawk and Muhammad <laughs> Ali and all <laughs> so this. So you met cr- all these guys. Oh, yeah. It was oh, really come cool. Come on. It was that's a awesome. fun, fun yeah. year. I was at the Muhammad Ali event that we did in Skydome. Right. I found myself in this two-story hotel suite with Lennox Lewis because I had to get some stuff <laughs> right. um, done. And he was like, hold on, hold on. Wait a couple minutes. Like, I'll be with you in a second. Right. And literally, there were two Nation of Islam guys with him showing him, like, scrapbooks of, like, photos from overseas and stuff. And I was like, holy crap, <laughs> this is crazy. That's so funny. So yeah, that was a good time. And then when I left there, I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I was pretty sure I wanted to do something for myself. I was playing poker like once or twice a week with some friends. Yeah, you're legit. I know when we actually worked together at 111. Yeah. And then you won a few poker uh-huh. tournaments there. It's a, if anybody doesn't know, it's an incubator space here. One of the biggest in Toronto. Yeah. And we worked together when I was at Borowell. Have you seen the new 111? The new 111 is massive. It is. uh, It's absolutely nuts. Crazy. So you did some poker and that's the reason probably why you won those poker games. Well, yeah. I went down to Vegas with a friend and actually he had the idea to do fantasy poker camps. And the thinking was like if people come in and go to fantasy baseball and fantasy hockey camps and all that. But there are so much worse athletes than the people. The neat thing about poker is you could actually compete with these people in the short term. Yeah. So we had the idea and I cold called like this, the Michael Jordan of poker at the time. What's his name? Phil Helmuth. Yes, I know that. I watched poker brat. You're right. Yeah. And asked him if he wanted to do poker camps. And it took a long time because he had an agent and I had yeah, to negotiate with the agent. Yeah. But we started running them in Vegas and people would pay all this money to come stay at Caesars Palace and learn to play poker with That's cool. Phil and his friends. Yeah. But I had a crazy poker education. Like I've probably learned from like the 30 of the top 50 players ever. <laughs> so don't, you know don't I mean? mess with you. No, no, I suck now. I haven't played in so long wow. and it, it really it's like riding a bike. It's like riding a bike. What did uh, you say? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. When I go to, I've been going to the Omers tournaments and just getting my ass kicked in like the first four minutes. Oh man. That's but you know, fast blind tournaments are really hard. Yeah, I know that is. So we ran that business for a long time. Harris bought the World Series of Poker and we were pretty friendly with them because they own Caesars Palace too. Right. And uh, they said, do you guys want to do what you're doing? But under our World Series of Poker brands, we created this new brand called the World Series of Poker Academy. And now we weren't dependent on Phil. We could use tons of different players. And every year they were minting 60 new bracelet holders and showing them on TV. So I could use those new people who weren't as expensive or as busy. And they also own 38 casinos around North America. So I had a buyer for some of the events. That's cool. We started doing that and it was neat. We started a company that did uh, live event production for the online poker sites. Right. So that flew us to crazy places. And yeah, it was an interesting time. Yeah. How did you come back to Toronto? You're like living the life. You're traveling to different cities. You're like learning from the top. 
Las well, Vegas I'm gonna, squares. I'll save the end of, of okay. that specific story because it'll take up the whole show. But oh, no, I would. I came back to Toronto <laughs> and again, like just startups, startups, startups. I, I worked on three or four or five or six or right. God knows how many startups. Right. And none of them did tremendously well, but right. all of them left me with like a narrowing and a narrowing and a narrowing and a narrowing right. of my field of vision, making me feel like I'm finally starting to understand that there is a way to do this. Right. There is a way to do this. You either have a lot of money. Right. And because of that can make mistakes or there is a way to do it if you don't. And when we talk about Abacus later, which is my current company, I really feel like it's just the product of getting my ass kicked over and right. over and over and over yeah. and over again and figuring stuff out and figuring out how different ways to look at situations. And yeah, so that's something we can talk about. Before Abacus, I was at Borowell. I was their head of growth for a couple of years. Nice. I was there from like when every loan mattered. Yeah. <laughs> and it was really interesting. The cool thing there was we became the first company that was able to give people their credit score for free. I know. I saw that. That's cool. Yeah. That really took off. Yeah, no, it did. It absolutely, like, you guys were really killing it there. You were talking about, like, there's some kind of a right way to do this. And I feel like that's something that you're, you started getting into in more growth stuff. Is that what drove you into growth? Like, you started off your career in biz dev, sales, startup founder, and now you're this growth first expert that a lot of people look up to. I know you probably would be humble enough to say nobody looks up to me, but yeah, you, I'm not you, super comfortable <laughs> with that. I know, but like but yeah, people, people do saying. people do look up to you. So like is that the thread that brought you into growth? Yeah. So I mean, if you own your own business, you're in sales, yeah, right? right? If you own your own business, you're in marketing. Right. If you have backers that expect to see growth, you're in growth. Right. So like I think I was probably doing growth before it was called growth. It was called growth. <laughs> yeah. Because if you don't grow, you die. It's true. So the first thing with growth is, and I don't know even know where to start, but the first thing is like there's philosophical differences before you get to the strategy okay, and the tactics. Let's talk, let's talk about that. Philosophical. So I love this stuff because okay. this is the meaningful stuff. Blow it up. Well, they talk about growth mindset. Like, yes. You hear that a lot. Yeah. What's the growth mindset to you? Like, why I'm asking you the question. Yeah, no, that's what perfect. does it mean so, to you? <laughs> it's something that I've heard over and over again from people in growth. It's this mindset that your who you are and your abilities is not set in stone. That you can always prove yourself. You can read. You can experiment. You can try new things compared to the fixed mindset where like, oh, I'm who I am and I'll never change. Okay, so that's you're on to the real good stuff. Okay. So the first thing that all good growth marketers do, and I'm always learning every day when I talk to other right. people about, is how to identify the metric or the action right. that's the real catalyst or inflection point. Like what's the real thing mm. that you should be focused on? Because it's not always, it's almost never revenue. Yeah, It's I'd, usually a driver of revenue. Exactly. It's something that you can affect. Mm. And then once you figure that out, a couple of things happen. First of all, you align everything around it. Yeah, right? all your efforts, energy. If your model relies on one person sharing with four, then the entire product needs to realign it around that objective. Right. So people pick the wrong objective all the time. Wow. You ever have Alex Shapillo on from Helpful? I'm Who trying to get should? him on. Yeah. Uh, Alex, you're you're coming on. I'm gonna talk to you. <laughs> you heard this here. Yeah, first. oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll actually I'll come back on with him if you want. That'd be fun too. <laughs> A little panel action. He's really good at thinking about what's the real behavior that we need to Right. So once you have that and you have your KPI, you can put the whole team around it. You can put the whole product around it. Nice. And then when you're doing marketing, you now have a common denominator mm, for all right. the stuff you're doing. Right. You said I'm humble and I joke all the time, like I'm not that smart. So what I need to do <laughs> is figure out ways to make 
complex decisions simple. Okay. And one of the ways to do that is to know the KPI that's going to make the difference right. and have that as your common denominator to everything you do. Makes sense. Because then you're just ranking and, and yeah. allocating to where it's working. And then if you learn that it, you picked the wrong KPI, you have to, uh, you know, Borowell example, without talking too much about them, right. is that the cost per acquisition on a $1,000 loan versus a $35,000 loan was a huge difference, wow. right? We couldn't just have one cost per acquisition. Right. So what was a KPI that would better measure for dollars than just a flat CPA? Right. So we evolved. Nice. You know, even before that, we evolved from number of loans to cumulative amount of loans. So that number evolves. Nice. But the smartest marketers are really good at getting to that one. Mm. If it's the invitation, then let's put right. everything around the invitation. Right. If it's a lead, let's put everything around the lead. That makes sense. So that's the first thing. The second thing that you brought up that's huge is like the beginner's mind. Mm. So selling advertising services now, I talk to a lot of companies and a lot of marketers and a lot of them are just in love with their shit. <laughs> <laughs> they're just yeah, in right. love with it. There's a couple reasons. Like they're committed to it. They're spending money on it. They had to sell it up. It's theirs. Like, You're right. But like at Borowell, I think what we did really, really awesome. And what we do with our clients now is we don't pretend we know anything. Right. We just come up with a system for figuring out how to find the answer. So big agencies are like, let's have one big idea. Let's make it amazing. And let's put it out there. Right. And we come in and we're like, Great. We love that idea. Tell us also what ideas two to six were. And do you have anything on the cutting room floor that was left? And right. do you have any old stuff we could repurpose? Right. Because we don't want to go in with one guess. We right. want to go in with 10 and then read the data to figure out if there's right. one that works. Oftentimes, a bunch of them are right, but for specific groups. So you have to uncover message A is good for target C. and right. message, You know what I mean? So it really is turning from an artistic industry to a scientific industry. Mm. And... Believe me when I say it, the industry is not prepared to make that switch. The amount of media that's being spent artistically and not scientifically, even when the data is readily available, is just unbelievable. Why do you think that is? I think it's just it's easier to look at artistic side to it or maybe the people on the leadership side who are making the money decisions don't grasp the data, would you say? Why? Well, I mean, in the ad agency world, there was a very specific set of milestones and outcomes that led right. to where they are today. I don't know if that's specific to other industries. I'd say in general, change doesn't come from inside the industry. I thought of a really funny, interesting example. This might only be interesting to me, but my business partner, Peter, needed to go get a watch strap replaced. Right. So we went to this mall where they had it and I watched the guy do it. And even the guy who, you know, those little pins that right. you have to like take out of the thing, even he had to spend five or six or seven minutes doing it. I'm thinking to myself, like an expert has trouble with this device. Apple came up with one that detaches and attaches in seconds. Like the answer is not going to come from the person who's been prying these little, right. these little springed yeah. pins together. It's going to come from someone who's like, how do we get it off quick and let them buy more of them? And I don't think the change often comes from inside. Yeah. So that's a problem. Plus, there's so many things that tie people to a business model that we don't even know. Processes, relationships, structure of deals, content deals. Right. You know, like, I think broadcast TV is dead. Like, I think it's friggin' dead. And people fight me on this all the time. But, like, it's just everything's changing. And their content yes. deals rely on knowing how much revenue you're going to get mm. to pay for a show. And that's going to change as it turns to a people-based thing. Right. So, I don't know. I just think the industry is going to change so much now between now and... 2020 that we're literally thinking about 2020 and then trying to like bring that back to today. If you said that it's like coming outside of the industry, 
is it people who are entrepreneurial or people who are crazy who will change it or who do you think will be the ones to like evolve people who don't think they already know the answers yeah i'm telling you that's the answer those people ask a lot of questions right they ask different questions those questions lead to new questions and they start doing things that no one else did i'll give you an example and then i'll tell you the way i sort of think about it plenty of fish sold for like 180 million dollars like they were one of the first in line to get a google adsense account when it came out (laughs) so instead of charging people to date they let them date for free and serve them ads right and where like lava life sold for 200 250 million dollars they sold for like 880 had one shareholder he was like a sole shareholder of that right it was just because he asked a different question not whether the price should be 695 or 795 or 895 a month what if it was free and we could take advantage Mm. of all the traffic that we have right and he killed it so right. all he did was ask one different question. That's crazy. That and that, you know, the sad thing when I talk to big companies is the company that's going to kick their ass is not one of the ones they're like war planning on the board from. It's one they don't <laughs> even know exists. Right. Or might exist in another place. And that's terrifying. Right. So if you think of a Rubik's Cube, there's three ways you could turn a Rubik's yeah. Cube. The first way, maybe up and down, is how most people think of innovation. It's like, is my industry going to be paperless and you know, I'm not going to lose jobs to machines and that kind of basic industry stuff. Right. Very myopic. The second way you could turn it, obviously, is sideways. Right. And that's people thinking about the industry in a whole yeah. different way. Forget paperless. Like, is the, are the needs changing? Are we going to be a totally different business? Are consulting companies going to become ad agencies? Like, how's the whole industry going to turn? But then the third way that Rubik's Cubes turn is enabling technologies change. Right. And that's where all the money is is won and lost. So it's like, how have my parameters changed? What is now possible that wasn't mm. a year ago? How are we going to combine A, B, and C? A, B, and C to make a D that's completely different. And that's really, really intense and scary and awesome and all those things at once because that's what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, in a year, something that could have cost you five or $6 million to build right. could be available for a couple hundred a month on a SaaS. Yeah. Think about that. Right. The barriers are so low. Yeah. But you really have to. Like Elon Musk does apparently does this amazing job about like constantly reevaluating his parameters to make sure that he isn't like bringing any truths as baggage forward. Nice. And then as it changes, he changes. So like I keep coming back to this open mind. It's the whole goddamn game. Pardon my language. <laughs> like you have to always think there's something better. When we did Facebook in-house at Borowell, Rob and I, like, there was always something better out there. What we had was just the best we'd found to date. And with that attitude, you're always pushing yourself. Interesting. How do you find the balance between doing what you know and works now to, like, opening your eyes to what's potentially about to kill it? Like, there's got to be a balance, right? You got to make money, but also you need to look ahead. Yeah, so a simple way that we can think about that is splitting the budget into champion and challenger. Nice. So you could put money into the champion, which is the best thing that's working to date, and then challenge it with the challenger. And the split between champion and challenger just depends on whether you want to emphasize results or learning. Mm. So a VC-backed startup may not be able to learn as much as they'd like to because there's an expectation of a certain week-over-week growth, and they're going to have to keep a big hunk of the budget and champion at the expense of experimental. Nice. It's a catch-22, though, because they should be spending most of their time learning because those learnings at that stage are worth so much more than the incremental growth. So then do you think there's a point where like startups take in too much money too soon so that they can't really explore the the things that are experimental so probably but i'm not a believer in that (laughs) i think it's like health it's like a company's never 
had enough money. Like the number one reason a company's going to go out of right. business is not having money. Money to me represents runway. It, it right. represents number of months I can stay in business, which ultimately represents the number of spins of the wheel I have. Right. Right. And if you have enough money for one spin of the wheel, that puts a lot of pressure on that spin. And <laughs> you're up against companies like Amazon, right. who buy Whole Foods, knock the price down by 45 or 50%, right. no, and then burn for five years. Right. Because they can't. They can't. They can survive. They right. got cash. Yeah. So you want to go up at that guy with one spin? Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that is You true. might as well buy a Powerball ticket. <laughs> so the more money you have... I'm a big fan of companies having lots of money. It lets you be wrong more often. It's true. Like how many times can Facebook or Google be wrong right now with all the money they have? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It lets you bring on the best people earlier, which is like an instant success for growing a business. Right. With Abacus, like the reason we took money early is so we could build the team that we envisioned in our head. Right. And we could do it a year earlier than we might have been able to otherwise. That makes sense. So yeah, I'm sure there's an optimal amount of money you should take. And I'm sure overall people take too much too early, but like, it's like good health. You really can't have too much of it. (laughs) You know, what's really interesting. My uncle in the eighties or nineties was like a pioneer in email. Nice. And the way this crazy story end is he developed email that Microsoft bought and it became Outlook which is still used today. And he was interviewed right after on CBC (laughs) radio. I'm going to make sure this advice stays, stays alive. (laughs) He was interviewed on CBC radio. Right. And say, what's like the number one advice you would give to entrepreneurs in Canada who are looking to make their dreams come true, blah, blah, blah. And his advice was to marry rich. (laughs) Marry rich person. (laughs) (laughs) So you got lots of money so you could be wrong lots of times. That's so funny. Yeah. So the idea is, I don't know. I don't know. Let your biggest problem be that your company's too capitalized. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. You've started already talking about experiments and experimental. How do you, in Abacus or in the past, how do you set up your experiments? Again, there's the philosophical and the tactical. In terms of the tactical, we just prioritize our hypotheses in terms of what we are most curious about, figure out how we're going to know what success looks like, how we're going to measure it, and what we're going to do based on that information. Just keep spinning that wheel. Nice. Basically, at almost anything, the, the more frequently you could spin that wheel. I like that analogy, spinning the wheel. It's like I watched a lot of game shows growing yeah, up. Yeah, even, uh, what is that, Wheel of Fortune? Yeah. Or other- well, I, I've watched Prices Right literally since I was a baby because like, my, <laughs> my nanny or whatever yeah, watched right. it. So like, I'll PVR Prices Right, right. and just watch it. <laughs> right. So I always think about game shows, and game shows have a lot of game theory in them. So like, I'm really interested in that stuff. In terms of prioritizing your hypothesis, how do you do that with your team? Like, do you have like a framework that you use? We use like an ICE framework, which is pretty standard. We have one we're working on that's our own, that's specific for our clients. Mm -hmm. And then we prioritize it. But we also really trust our intuition. Mm -hmm. You know, we have 30 clients or something right now and we're running all these growth experiments. Like we're collectively getting smarter and our instinct is getting better. Right. Plus we're working closer with Facebook than we ever have before. So we have access to their thought leadership and expertise because they have 100% visibility in everything. So we're just getting to the point where like we have a feeling which ones can yield a better result also. Ian, who's our, our head of performance marketing and is an amazing Facebook marketer, do you remember in school Bedmass, which was the right, order yeah. of operations Brackets, for? Yeah. So he's developing an order of operations Why? for Facebook testing right. based on what where we think you should start to get the most lift. Okay. So you know we think about it very. Uh, we take a disciplined approach. Nice. But what we want to deliver for clients is not just results, but also learning. So yeah. when we were able to center our product offering around the experiment and not just the result, things got really interesting. 
Because that was a big complaint of like the old agency system. The agencies got smarter, but the clients right. didn't. So we're trying to solve for that a little bit. Nice. I would like that you're sharing your learnings back to the clients so that they're learning with you as much as you're learning with them. And figuring out where else the learnings are applicable. Nice. You know? What kind of companies are you working with Abacus Agency right now? It's such a crazy range. Right. I think the two areas that we're doing the most in are financial services nice. and apps. Okay. Financial services very like it's fascinating. Is it fintech companies or like big financial services? Because the big financial services traditionally are more uh, risk averse. Right. And then you're coming here, it's like, well, you know, we can experiment with a little bit of cash and find new channels for acquisition. Are you finding that it's a problem with… No, so our experiments aren't risky. Okay. Because we know what their CPA target is and and we're using that to measure it. Right. So where traditional may put a million dollars behind an idea that's bad, we wouldn't get very far down the road before we knew it was bad and started allocating elsewhere. So I think the experiments actually make it less risky, not more risky. Mm. But I mean, your point is valid. There are lots of marketers out there who are happy to not be accountable. Yeah. And aren't dying for ways to make themselves more accountable. And that's just one of the, the flaws with big companies. Like your risk is terminal and your upside is minimal. So your incentive is 100% to protect yourself and not to try to do amazing things for the bottom line. Oh, that's so true. But again, we're envisioning 2020. We're not trying to build something that's great for December 2017. And in, in 2020, accountability and attribution are going to be way further developed than they are now. So we envision a world where you're not going to have the option to mm. determine whether you're accountable or not. That's a fascinating comment about attribution because right now it is a problem that's still trying to solve. It's like, where did that sign up come from? And then trying to stitch together different data points, super hard. Like, what are other things you're seeing for 2020 in terms of where marketing and… Wow, how long do you have? <laughs> Keep going. I, I, have, I have the whole day. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, so these are some of like the key hypotheses and tenets of Abacus. So I guess people probably don't know what Abacus is. It's um, a digital ad agency that specializes in Facebook and Instagram. And we're performance in that, that common denominator we talked about earlier. We're trying to figure out what it is, and then we're running experiments to make it go up or down based on the objective… So when we started Abacus, we had hypotheses about what the advertising world looked like in 2020. One of it was specialists over generalists. Mm. So instead of hiring an agency to do 12 things, maybe you're going to hire fewer of them and they're going to be better at it. Right. That an agency could be more profitable and scalable if it focused. Mm. That an agency could become masters if it focused because it doesn't have to spread its talent over a ton of different disciplines. That code and data are going to be more important than art and copy. That comes back to like, I'd rather have five ideas than one big one. Yeah. We have a joke or a saying at Abacus that like our creative director is the audience. Like we don't <laughs> want to sit around in a room and try to figure out what's going to work when we can get instant feedback. Right. And we know what to look for. Yeah. So code and data over art and copy. The death of agency of a record AOR, which is basically like, okay, we're going to give you all our money and you're going to do everything. Mm. People are becoming more and more willing to like work with specialists that the specialists are figuring out a way to work together so they can offer a more full service. So it's really interesting. And some of our hypotheses are starting to come true. And that just powers us forward because like, you know, we've kind of almost gamified the building of it a little bit. That's so cool. No, it's so true that code and copy is going to trump artwork. So then would you say the people of the future should know a little bit of code, at least HTML and CSS or JavaScript? I mean, yeah, or- it could never hurt. Right. But I think creative people need to get with the program. Mm-hmm. 
because right. this new type of creative that is measured by its ability to elicit data right. and elicit particular data is different than the creative that's been built. And I feel like we're sitting around with progressive forward thinking clients and our creative people and just like saying, we need to figure out what this new creative looks like because creative plus data is something new. Mm. Just like America plus television was something new. Right. It's just different. And every day we're thinking about like, what is this new type of creative and what, what's it going to look like and who's going to deliver it. And so it's really interesting. Machine learning is definitely going to play a part and already right. does. Abacus believes the future is the man and the machine, nice. not one or the other. Nice. You started to sound like how I would define what growth marketers are. They're creative, they're data-driven, they know how tech works. Is that how you would define growth marketing or is it something else? No, those are good ones. I think curious is the key one. Right. I think that's something I look for more than anything. Why is that? And you might have already answered it, but I... Well, I mean, data and stuff... To the degree that most advertisers leverage it can be learned. Right. Creative can probably be learned. It can be learned. You can see ads that work and figure out why they work. Curiosity is something that's innate. Mm. And it's something like, I think it's a curse, to be honest. (laughs) It's one of those things that you would look at from the outside and be like, oh, that's such a gift, but it's a curse. Like, I don't look at anything without thinking, like, why was it done that way? Or why don't they do it this way? Or how come it can't be better? Or what if this... I don't really enjoy thinking like, like <laughs> personally. Why not? Like, but I can see it leading me to asking different questions than other people are asking. Is it because like people are like, oh, you're starting to get annoying. You're asking too many questions, or more so like your mind's always like my mind's oh. always yeah flatter. Nice. Yeah, because I don't care if people think I'm asking too many questions. <laughs> I, ask, I ask so many questions. Some of the smartest people I know ask a lot of questions because it's about not about knowing. It's more so about trying to understand. Yeah. I think your outputs are a function of your inputs. Mm. So you need to have a broad, diverse group of inputs to have the right outputs. I also think that the ideas I have are always combinations of other ideas. Talk to a lot of musician friends about this. And they feel the same way. Like they have an idea for a song and it wasn't like I was sitting on the toilet and the song came to me. It was like, (laughs) here's a riff that I thought of a couple years ago and some lyrics that came to me and like, it's more like, you know, James Altucher, the, the author, yeah, calls it idea sex. Like the ideas have sex with each other and produce new ones. But I find that almost exclusively the way that I come so up good. with ideas. That's so good. So you need to put a whole bunch right. of stuff in because it's not just the literalness of that idea. It's how is that idea going to mate with the other ones? Right. I'll see something in an industry and I'll be like, why doesn't this industry do it? I'll see, you know, meta things like why is the power shifting to the customer in every industry except these? Right. What's holding it back? What would, you know, make the power shift? Because, like, I just believe it's, it's going to shift. Right. And identifying it earlier is just opportunity. You're starting to sound, like, uh, very entrepreneurial. You're seeing uh, problems, opportunities. And then do you ever, like, drive in to do the action itself? So is that probably the reason why you started Abacus? You saw this problem with in the agency world. You saw this opportunity. It's like, shit, I got to do something about this. Yeah, for sure it did. I mean, I was working closely with Facebook when I was at Borowell and I was learning and hearing really interesting stuff. And some of my hypotheses were definitely formed there and through my friendships with people there. So that was like a pretty unique position for such a small company to have that sort of access. And it was great. And that's where sort of I learned about it. So yeah, that's a part of it. Being a part of the change in this industry, I think would be fun too, because it's really broken. 
Mm. And one of the, I mean, other people listening to this might not want to hear this, but like, we really think that the traditional agency world is in like the top or bottom of the ninth inning and things are really about to change. And it's not that they won't be part of the solution. They're, right. they're big, great companies, but like things are about to change and we see it playing out every single day. And it just buoys us and gives us the fuel we need to keep pushing it because, you know, 2020, this is all we ever think about. Right. I joke that we're like from the future because all we're doing is thinking about 2020 and it's it's just a function of all the startups I built where I didn't set my horizon far enough. And by the time the mm. thing had traction, it was too late. Right. You know, that's such an, a fundamental but interesting thing. Like the train's going to come. You're going to identify right. the train, but now right. you got to figure out how you're going to be like on the tracks when it hits. That's cool. And if you're thinking about 2017, 2018 problems, unless your thing works really quickly, by the time you have it, it's going to be old. Probably why people have to pivot so much is mm. by the time they bring their thing to market, the market's moved. Right. So this is something with Abacus that I did that I've never done before, which is really thinking about reverse engineering a vision right. of the future versus just pushing out a message. And then, you know, I was on Twitter one day. I, I live on Twitter and yeah. I was on it one day and I really should get off Twitter. It's not good for my mental health. But I was <laughs> wow. on it a couple months ago and, and I saw this tweet that said 2020 is like 27 months away. I think that was like four months ago. So it's like 23 months away. <laughs> then I was like, holy shit. The stuff that we talk to the clients about today and that we talk to like people and partners about today are going to be the opinions and the beliefs in 2020. So not only can we think we see where it's going and try to build for it, we can influence people getting to it by talking to people and sharing our message and spreading our story and our message and what we believe in. And that's really weird because it's like, okay, now not only do we see where it's going, but we're helping in our own little way shape it. Right. Now that's super exciting. Like you're defining your destiny, essentially. You're defining what the future essentially would look like. Well, we could be wrong. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and at least you have an opinion. I think the problem is, exactly. is a lot of people don't think that far. But they also don't have an opinion about what it will look like. Yeah. I love Someone that. just recently said, like, it's not our job to figure out the future. And I almost died. Like, <laughs> yeah. Literally. I'm like, no, that's precisely your job. Yeah. I was on an innovation panel with some people. And, you know, I was hearing all these people talk about innovation right. and all this stuff. And there's this concept of innovation theater where you're trying to look like you're innovating, but you're really oh, not my innovating. So true. And I asked the question, what are you doing to increase your capability to predict the future three or four years down the road? And she said, no one has a crystal ball and no one can predict the future. And I said, well, forget about crystal ball and predicting the future. Right. Like if you don't know what it's going to be in two or three years, then what are you doing today? Yeah. Like if you don't have the ability to predict what it's going to look like in three years, then that's the problem you need to solve for. You need exactly. to get better at institutionally figuring out what the future looks like <laughs> because otherwise like it's just pointless it is and you talked about the train analogy i heard of this puck analogy like you want to be where the puck is going yeah that's gretzky yeah mm -hmm. right so i think that's the role of business leaders and this isn't flying cars and stuff like no. we're not talking about like someone predicted the internet uh, people did predict the internet but like this is just about like what do the clients hate about the current offering in the industry right. Who's coming in to meet that solution? Right. Who's better prepared to meet the right. solution? Which incumbents are completely unprepared to pivot in the way they're going to need to? Like literally incapable. Right. Part of our thesis on broadcast television is that the TV broadcasters and the broadcast companies are 
systematically and structurally unable to be mm. to compete in this where we see the market moving. Right. What the hell is going to happen then? Right. What's going to happen when digital media triples because right. people are buying TV? Pro, you know, programmatically. Right. I'll call it programmatically, but that has a bad taste in my mouth in terms of that word yeah. because so many people <laughs> are poorly buying digital programmatically now. Right. But like just on a people basis. Right. Which means I'm buying, I'm following you around with a TV ad as opposed to buying everyone who watches Breaking Bad. Right. And unless you're PNG and you sell soap, who the hell wants everyone watching Breaking Bad? Yeah, that makes sense. So it's going to be the Netflix and the Apples and the Amazons of the world and the Hulus. And they're way larger companies than the Foxes and the NBCs. Which is absolutely nuts because that wasn't the case three decades ago, right? But what about sports? What about sports? It's like you can't see Apple outbidding <laughs> Fox, who may be decertified next year. That's for, so funny. Like, give me a break. Yeah, no, like it's crazy because like you're seeing Netflix and all these digital media companies, they're starting making their own shows. They're starting to make their own movies. Yep. And they're like going on to like film festival to try to get awards mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nuts. What do you think Facebook and Instagram ads is going? Like you're talking about the future of agencies, the future of of digital media in terms of Facebook and Instagram and social ads, where do you see that going in? I think attribution is going to be a big thing right. to improve. Right. There's stuff that Facebook's launching in Q1 of next year. That's going to make a right. huge difference in attribution. Nice. Not just for big companies, for small companies, but everyone hates their attribution right now from like <laughs> the CMO of Best Buy. Right. Sorry for speaking for you, but I assume <laughs> all the way down, like no one feels it. We're just in a bit of a dark age for attribution. Right. The first problem with attribution is people saying, well, no one gets fired for buying TV. So then they go out and buy the most unattributable <laughs> medium they can, and now they're screwed to begin with. And it's like, who put the gun to your head and told you to spend all that money on the most unattributable right. medium? Or they spend money on 90 things, and then they're never going to know the interrelationship right. between the 90 things. Right. So there's something to be said for, and this is something that uh, Paul Graham says about startups. Right. You're going to die because you don't get one thing to work, wow. not because you didn't get 12 things to work. Right. And- the fewer things you have, the easier it is to attribute. So I think attribution is going to be big. Obviously, everything's mobile. Yeah. So Facebook comprises almost a quarter of all mobile time. Right. If you think about that, that can just rock your world. Yeah. A quarter of all your time on your phone is in a Facebook property. That's crazy. And that's bigger than the next 10 combined. Like, right. So like people are walking around. They're staring at their phone all day long. This is the biggest consumer behavior shift, in my opinion, ever. I think it's way bigger than television. Because nice. television only dominated you like in the morning when you were getting dressed, but then you had to go to work. Right. This is in your face and in your hand Every time, all day long. Right. Think about unlocking 80 times a day is what right. people are talking about. Wow. So it's the biggest consumer behavior change, and Facebook's obviously a big part of it. So right. how advertising and mobile and attribution work. Cool. Sometime in the beginning of 2012, Facebook will have store visit measurement. Whoa. So we'll be able to use right. location tracking and data modeling and stuff to predict how many people saw your ad and then showed up in your location and how much was it per visit. Wow. It'll take a while to be perfect, but that's what retailers are looking amazing. for forever. That would be crazy. That would like break the digital to brick and mortar. I have a face ID on my new iPhone 10, right? <laughs> what if we get to a point where that database is available to advertisers and you could put a camera yeah, or a reader a on, on the store. store and be like Jeff checked in and still anonymously like still hashed the way we hashed today so you can't pull individuals out of it but compare this list to this list and tell me where the overlap was and now we just use their face to attribute that them. is that would be crazy yeah maybe we should build it <laughs> <laughs> how about vr i know facebook owns oculus like there's gotta be like ar is getting a part yeah well here's a great example 
I downloaded the Warby Parker app for iPhone 10. Right. And they've got they use the 3D camera to map your face and then recommend glasses. Now they don't they don't put them on me, which would have been it's awesome. But at the same time, they were out like three days after the iPhone X, so like (laughs) they're already well ahead of it. But they would give me a list of glasses that should fit my irregularly shaped face. (laughs) So that's great, really cool. And AR could put the glasses on your face, and you could see what they look like. At that point, I don't need to go to a glasses store. Nice. I'm still looking for a new pair now, and it's like I'm going to go to a store. I'm going to figure out which ones I want, and then I'm going to figure out where to get them. Nice. So yeah, in terms of Oculus and VR. I didn't think much of it. And then I was at a Facebook event and I tried it. And oh my God, <laughs> my current concern is that people aren't going to leave the house in a couple years. Because I played this first person shooter game on a moving subway. And I was just like, oh man, I could play that for 12 hours. It, it was you, remarkable. You can come into work virtually, right? With that. Well, Zuckerberg used it to do. Yeah, like I know. I remote. saw that. I saw I that. could see doing that. Like that'll be the game changer in remote working. You're working from home, but you're like walking around with avatars in the office. Yeah, or you're just around an eight-person board meeting, but everyone's there in person. How about you're playing poker and you can see tells? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Why not? Absolutely not. Like, I can make the pig or the chicken on iPhone X have a tell. Like, right. it, it can match my face. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think the world is changing. I'm old, so I find it kind of scary. Like, I'm nervous for art and I'm nervous for literature and culture. <laughs> I'm nervous like for the social skills of people in 50 mm. years where your life may be better with the goggles on than it is with the goggles off. I'm worried that there's clearly no system to control, not what we can do, but what we should do. Mm. And the financial rewards are always going to contribute to people pushing that envelope. So, I mean, what people don't understand when they talk about social media and the election and all these, these privacy issues, these are questions that we've never had to ask before. Like we've never had companies as powerful as Google and Facebook and we've never had to ask these questions. When we talk back to like who's asking the right questions, who's curious enough to ask the right questions, who realizes that the world shifted and aren't using old lenses. You see these 84 year old senators asking the Facebook lawyers questions and you're like, I'm positive the answer is not coming from you. Mm. And, you know, we have to be like tolerant and, and lenient because this is stuff that just it's never had to be thought about. Yeah. Like, does a 16 year old need a driver's license if self-driving cars are there or do they not need to know how to drive anymore? That's crazy. Like, I have no idea. Yeah. But someone better answer these questions. Yeah. Can you drink and drive? Because <laughs> <laughs> now it's not you driving. It's a car driver. See what I mean? So even law, like you're saying that even lawmakers and all this, they're not keeping up to pace with technology. They itself. never, ever, ever, yeah. ever will. Like right. that's never changing. Right. They're never going to keep up with the pace. Neither are the schools. Right. So how do we deal with regulation and education yeah. working against technology? That's right. Yeah. They're always a couple of years behind, but then like technology moves like in months, in, in weeks, right? Back to my idea about the enabling technology. Like right. all of a sudden putting two things together lets you do a third thing that was never you know, available. Siri, um, like developers can now use Apple voice recognition as a service where like a month before that came out, you were working with like IBM Watson and these like really difficult, hard, crappy, you know what I mean? And and in one second, now you could add voice recognition. That's crazy. And if you're not watching those things and assessing the parameter changes, you're going to keep building stuff that then gets obsolete in four seconds. Wow, there's so much to take in. Yeah, it basically means our job is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's and no one's going to respect it once it's done because it's right. going to appear obvious. Right. 
And yeah, it's just one of those things. But one of the things like, I don't care about the title growth hacker or growth marketer, and I'm not like big for labels, but I am big for like mandating this new role in a company, this new org chart position that sort of works as the glue between these departments that if they don't get their act together and work together, they won't be competitive against the ones that can. Mm -hmm. So I do like this new growth marketer that isn't a cheap hire. That it isn't a junior hire, right? But make sure that strategy and sales and marketing and product are all even finance are right. all working together. That makes sense. What kind of tips would you have for some of my listeners who are just maybe graduating? And you've talked about all this stuff. What will be your tips to them? Uh, other might- than marry rich, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Other than marry rich. Wow, I've had really good success having mentors. Have mentors, formalize it, put the responsibility on you to be prepared for every time you guys get together. Not the mentor's problem. Yeah, they're busy, right? Yeah, and have a good mentor. That's really helpful. I guess on the same tip, I think the best thing you could do out of school is get an internship at a good company. Yeah. You know, like that still goes so far and you're going to learn really well. Yeah. So I think that first move is really important. Have a group of people like what you're into right. so you can think and talk. Idea sex, have some. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But like even when I was hanging out with a ton of poker players, right. like there were these online guys right. that were amazing. And they'd play such a huge number of hands that it would have taken like Doyle Brunson driving from like saloon to saloon <laughs> a thousand <laughs> lifetimes to get the same right. experience. But they traveled in packs and talked about stuff and they understood each other and they got so much smarter in front of my eyes by doing it. So this idea mm. of having like a pack is right. helpful. Right. And then I think the last one was learn how to learn, learn mm. how to teach yourself. Wow. And if you can do that, then you can do a lot and you could be self-sufficient. And I think that's valuable. So like learn when you have a problem, how to get the answer, how to find it on your own. And then you can learn everything. Awesome. I'd like to wrap up. Is there anything that you want to talk about yourself in terms of promotion? Do you want to give out your Twitter account or our Abacus Agency's website? Yeah, sure. I am always on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Jeff underscore Goldenberg. Abacus is abacus.agency if anyone wants to check it out. Nice. We've put a lot of heart into that website. It was nice. <laughs> Thank I saw you. it. Thank you. And yeah, if anyone has any questions or wants to chat, just say hi. Anything in particular, Facebook or the future or? I think right now as a particular time in the history of business, I think there is so much changing that the rewards available to the people who can understand and act on what's happening are immense. Right. So I would just challenge everyone to look up a little bit, set their perspective a little bit farther, see how the trends are combining to create new things and trying to figure out those problems and not the dumb, dumb ones from today. (laughs) Well, that's it. You've heard it from Jeff. Thank you so much. We appreciate you for checking our show. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening on this episode. One of the quotes I got from Jeff is this, marketing now has become less of an artistic industry and more a scientific industry. And that's one of the finding with marketing and growth is that it's becoming more data-driven. Now, if you want the high-level outline and quotes again from this episode, you can go to growthmarketing.today forward slash 015. If you liked it, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to sign up for our Insider Club community at Growth Marketing Today to get the latest news and join our members-only Slack community. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me a short email at Ramley at Growth Marketing Today. I'd love to hear from you. Other than that, this is Ramley from Growth Marketing Today and keep on growing. <laughs>